Grace, mercy, and peace to you, friends, from God our Father, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we sang in that song, through Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, glory to God alone is revealed to us in Scripture alone. Amen. I love Reformation. Maybe you can tell. Having a fun time today. Uh, big three of the church festivals for me. Okay, yeah. Easter. It, it's up there, obviously. Christmas, yeah. Not a, a distant third for me. Reformation. Uh, getting to celebrate this, this rich heritage that we, as a Lutheran church, uh, proclaim, treasure, hold forth. It's a wonderful thing. And every year I get the chance to, so far, um, the, the years that I've been a pastor now, this is my third Reformation, I get the chance to talk about what Reformation is to people who weren't in these pews the previous year. Uh, same thing is true this year, and so I look forward to getting to explain what that is once more. Uh, there's a fair amount of church history that's involved with it, and as I mentioned on the cover of your bulletin there, you've got a picture of that uh, This guy, Martin Luther there, as you can see, a, a Catholic monk. We celebrate Reformation around October 31st annually because 506 years ago, 1517, that Roman Catholic monk priest, Martin Luther, uh, went to the door of the church where he served in Wittenberg, Germany, and took a list of 95 theological debate topics, what we call the 95 Theses, and he hammer them up onto the door there. It was kind of a, uh, a common thing that was sort of a, a quasi-bulletin board, right? We've got the board in the back that's got, uh, you know, kind of rotating announcements about what's going on in our church, and our church body. If I were going to post 95 Theses, I'd probably post them there. For Luther, it was the door. It was the door of the church. Uh, he also sent a copy of these theses to his ecclesial superiors, to his bosses in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Luther wrote these theses because he was bothered by something he had seen going on. There was this, this fellow running around Germany, a guy named Johann Tetzel, who was selling what were called indulgences. It might, right, you hear the name and it sounds like maybe he was selling fancy chocolates or bat bombs or something like that. Indulgences, sweet treats. Uh, indulgences were, and still are, Nothing more than a, a document, a, a piece of paper that the Roman Catholic Church can issue stating that you have received, well, what Tetzel was saying that they stated was that you had received through this document the forgiveness of sins. And Tetzel himself was at the behest of the Roman Catholic Church selling these indulgences. Luther was a good pastoral priest. And he recognized that when he, he saw, he saw some of his congregants were coming to him at, at mass and confession and other settings, showing him these and asking him to talk, talk to them about like, how, what, what do I get from this? How much forgiveness of sins have I gotten by buying this thing? And Luther was horrified as a good pastor and priest. He, he realized that what Tetzel was doing if, if the church can sort of simply forgive, if, you, if your sins can be forgiven by simply placing some money in the offering plate back there and that's getting brought up here and that's what does it, where is Jesus in that equation? Luther realized. It, it entirely removed Christ from the Christian picture. 
And so Luther wrote what, again, now is called the 95 Theses, arguing against them. To be clear, if you would go and read the 95 Theses, there's some solid stuff in there, but they are not what you would honestly call a, a Lutheran document, a, a Protestant document. They're pretty solidly Roman Catholic. See, here was Luther's issue. He was not taking issue with the idea of indulgences in general. He was pointing out that what Tetzel was doing was not in line with what the Roman Catholic Church technically taught about indulgences. Indulgences were meant to simply be not a forgiveness of sins thing. Indulgences were meant to take time off purgatory. You could, through acquiring an, indul an indulgence, expect time off purgatory, this place that the Roman Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church as well posits, is a place where after you die, even if your sins have been forgiven, you, it, you've made it, your sins are forgiven if you're in purgatory. If not, you're in hell. If, if you're in purgatory, your sins have been forgiven, your soul just needs a little bit of a, a buffing, right? You need a little bit of a car wash before you can get into heaven, is what purgatory does for you. An indulgence takes some time off of purgatory so that you can get into heaven a little quicker. So one, Luther was bothered by the idea that Tetzel was promising more than what indulgences were supposed to do. They, they were not forgiveness of sins, was Luther's point. This is, this is purgatory stuff. And two, Luther said, you're not supposed to sell them. They can be earned by maybe going on a pilgrimage, by, by volunteering a church, involving yourself in that kind of way, surrendering of your time, right? your sacrifice. Then you could earn from your church and indulgence, and you could expect some time off purgatory. And what Luther wanted to point out was nothing more, nothing less than that. He had no intention of getting any bigger than that issue. Hey, it's, it's, it's not, Luther was saying, that I disagree with purgatory at the time. It's not that I disagree with indulgences in general. It, it's that this fellow Tetzel is distorting things. And so Luther wrote these 95 theses. Luther sent them off to his ecclesial superiors because he expected them to discipline Tetzel and to restore the prop, pr proper teaching of indulgences and a purgatory. Uh, instead, they came down on Luther because Tetzel was selling these indulgences to fund the building of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. If any of you have ever been to Rome and you've been able to see St. Peter's Basilica, uh, this is what they were building up, this massive, glorious cathedral with the money from those indulgences, they did not want their apple cart upset. And so they tell this no-name monk, Luther, who's a professor at this backward school in Wittenberg uh, and a, a parish priest in this remote corner of Germany, they tell him, what? Shut up. What? Why are you making a stink here? This is not your place. Ultimately, they end up fast-tracking him uh, for discipline. Four years later, 1521, Luther would end up being tried for heresy, convicted of heresy, and expelled from the Roman Catholic Church. During those four years, Luther came to see the falsehood not only of indulgences and of purgatory. What he ultimately came to see was that everything he had been trying to uphold in the Roman Catholic Church was false as well. That all, the whole system, it, if the Roman Catholics, and it's an, an, an incredible thing, if the Roman Catholics had just cracked down on Tetzel a little bit and made him clean up his, his act and the, the promises that he was offering about these things, Luther probably would have shut up and died a Roman Catholic monk in backwards corner of Germany. That would have been it. But the Roman Catholics said to Luther, no, you're wrong. 
And Luther said, well, if there's really only one way for me to figure it out, I guess I should get back into the Bible a little more. And he realized that he had been asking the wrong question, that he had been asking the wrong thing, that he had been focused on entirely the wrong things. And this then, by the time that Luther was on trial for heresy in 1521, four years later, this became the, the central question, the really important question that the 95 Theses barely touched on. Luther wanted to ask the question, how are human beings justified before God? Justify. It's an important theological word. Uh, we use that word in regular English too, right? And if a student hasn't completed his or her homework, right, the teacher may not penalize them if they can provide justification, if they can justify their failure to complete their actions. My dog ate it, you know, probably not going to work. That's probably not going to justify your failure. Grandma died last night. Okay. Then when I was a teacher, if I had heard that, I probably would have said, no, okay, uh, I'll give you a couple days. You can keep, keep working on that. Give it to me next week. They've provided a reason for under which, right, they ought to be considered innocent. They ought not be punished for what happened. They've provided justification. They've justified what they've done. The theological meaning of justification is not all that different from the way we would think about it there, right? Before before God, in God's face, um, the Latin phrase here, coram Deo, in the sight of God, all people need to provide a reason as to why they should not be punished, why they should receive praise and blessing from God rather than condemnation and rejection. Why should we be viewed as innocent? Why should we be viewed as another theological biblical word, righteous? When you see, by the way, righteous and justify in the Bible, Understand that these are the same word in Greek. They come from the same root word. Dikaiao is the word here. Just, justice, justify, righteous, righteousness. All the same word, fa word family. Uh, and Luther raised this then as the central question of Christianity. How are human beings justified before God? And that's the question that ultimately produced the real argument between Luther and those who now call themselves Lutherans and Roman Catholicism on the other side. It wasn't this indulgence thing. It wasn't purgatory. It was this question. What justifies us? By what rationale might God declare us innocent? The answer, which both sides give, frankly, is Jesus, right? To be clear, uh, no one is going to posit anything other than the idea that it's Jesus who is our justification. How Jesus does so, that's the question. And the two options are by faith alone or by faith and works. I've got a little blurb there underneath the sermon there in the worship folder for you. Uh, page 10, just a quick overview of this debate. In there, I've got a couple of Bible passages. I'll quote them too, but they're there for you, which either side can assert as proving their point. There are others. There are many others which both sides will use, but these, these would be key for the faithful inside. That's me, in case anybody's confused. Uh, You've got Romans 4. To the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Their faith is justification, right? Same word. Does not work, but trusts God. That's righteousness. That certainly sounds like this side, the Lutheran side, has some pretty good grounding there. For the faith and work side, you've got something like James chapter 2. A person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. As a note on that translation, too, the Greek literally says there, not 
a person is considered righteous, but the Greek there literally says a person is justified. That's a strong statement, right? And if you're just going to stack sort of those two scriptures up against one another, that statement certainly seems to be more clear, more definitive. The faith and works passage would certainly seem to weigh out if you're just going to put these two up against one another. We've got to look at the preponderance of the scriptures. We've got to look at all the, all the places where this topic is discussed to come to the conclusion rather than stack two simply against one another. And the section of Romans that we read as our second reading today, Paul the Apostle walks out, really builds a step-by-step case as to the faith alone argument. Let's walk through some of those verses and see the Apostle Paul doing that. From verse 20 toward the beginning of the reading that you've got there, that's, if you want to see it in your bulletin, it's on page 7 over to 8. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law is how Paul starts off. Initially, right, it sounds like it's a pretty solid argument for the faith alone side. If no one's going to be declared righteous by works of the law, but there is a problem here, right? And people who will posit faith and works will point out, we're not arguing that it's works alone. We're saying that it's faith and works. This passage initially, right, obviously rules out works alone. That's just not on the table, to be clear, right? There's not really a Christian uh, branch that teaches ultimately it's your works alone that save you. So this verse doesn't rule out yet faith and works. It does clearly rule out works alone. It certainly doesn't say faith alone. But the phrase that follows it is worth explaining. Through the law, we become conscious of our sin. There's a shorthand way that I sometimes talk about the idea that's being expressed here by the Apostle Paul, and you've probably heard me say this. The law is a mirror. The law what does that word mean, right? Simply put, it's the totality of all of God's commands. It's his, it's his will regarding how we as humans ought to live. Romans chapter 13, verse 10, we heard last week in our second reading. Uh, the Apostle Paul summed up the entire law as simply love. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law, the Apostle Paul said. Love. And Paul's just echoing Jesus there who sums up the law in these two sentences. Love God and love your neighbor. That's what the law is. It's God's will for our lives, what we should do. So what does it mean that the the law, that this command love, is a mirror when I talk about it that way? I always illustrate it this way. When I was in college, I worked at an Applebee's for two years. uh, And in the bathroom of that Applebee's, the fluorescent lighting above the, the sink's mirror was the most unflattering, just awfully garish light that I have ever encountered. Actually, you guys maybe have been to that Applebee's, the New Alm Applebee's. There you go. Um, Anytime I stood in front of that mirror, right, washing my hands before I went back out onto the restaurant floor, I'd look up and it was hideous. I I looked hideous. And I don't know, maybe you're looking at me right now and thinking, well, duh. But I, I thought, wow, this really does some horrible things to me, looking at myself in this particular mirror, in this particular lighting. When I talk about the law as a mirror, that's the kind of mirror that I want us to understand. The law is not a mirror that you maybe get to look into after you've done your makeup or after you've combed back your hair, right? After you've brushed your teeth and and trimmed up your beard or whatever it might be, giving yourself a clean shave. The law is bright, fluorescent lighting showing out all the pores on your nose, all the crookedness and yellowness of your coffee-stained teeth, all of that kind of thing, showing you that you haven't tweezed your nose hairs in a little while. That's the law. 
That's what we see in the law mirror. Paul the Apostle says, we don't look into the law mirror and think, darn, I look pretty darn good. Paul says, rather, the law makes us aware of our sin. It shows us our flaws. It shows us that we are not as good looking as we would hope to be. So from that verse, right, the takeaway, justification, obviously, again, can't be through works alone. That option is simply not on the table. The law mirror shows that to be true for each one of us, right? If I'm going to posit that I'm saved by my works alone, the law is going to show me the ugly reality. Can't do it. Still have to determine, though, is it faith alone or is it faith and some works? The next verse is important. But now apart from the law, the righteousness, again, that's the same word as justification, the righteousness of God has been made known. This righteousness, this justification is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Righteousness being given is just another way that the scriptures express justification. Something to be justified is for it to be given righteousness. So Paul says here, justification comes, two phrases, apart from the law, through faith. Right? The law is that which determines what people should and should not do. The law is love God and love your neighbor. The law prescribes works for us, to say that another way. So now we're pressing into this issue, right? If Paul says that apart from the law, apart from this thing that God has handed down that tells us what we should or shouldn't do, righteousness comes, then works are being sidelined here. We still haven't heard it definitively said but we're certainly seeing them pushed to the side. Verse 23, though, and onward, Paul seals the deal. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's that truth which the law mirror shows us, right? We, we see that in the law mirror. I've sinned, I've fallen short. And all are justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Justified freely, that phrase, that word in particular, freely, that's important. Justification occurs, Paul says, freely. The Greek word here, doreton, literally means as a gift. Gifts are not earned. If they are, they aren't gifts, right? They're wages. There's a category that kind of blurs the distinction between, right, a gift and wage, right? If we talk about tips. What is a tip? Is it a gift or is it wages? Ultimately, though, a tip, whether it's a buck left on the table, whether it's $200 written out on the credit card slip, whatever a tip is, it's tied to services rendered. It's not a gift, right? I can't tip a homeless person on the street who I want to give some money to. That's not a tip. In no way is it a tip, unless, he, unless I asked him where I can find a cup of coffee and then I'm tip, giving him a dollar. Still, he did something for me. If justification, as Paul says, is a gift, if it's given freely, it's not a tip and it's not wages. There's not a transaction here. There are no services being rendered to receive wages, to receive tips. Ultimately, you have to perform work, not so a gift. If justification is indeed a gift, works cannot be in the picture. The Roman Catholic view of justification is essentially a generous tip. Right? It's a blurring of that category between a wage and a gift. Right? Ultimately, they posit that God is generous, and certainly he is. They posit that none of us deserve what it is that we're being given there, and certainly we're not. 
But their system is this idea. So long as we perform our works, even if we don't do them terribly well, right? Even if we are the kind of, of server who forgets to bring the, the refill of coffee over to the table, right? Who doesn't, doesn't check in. How are those first couple bites, right? God, in the Roman Catholic view of justification, is still a very extravagantly generous diner who even when he's got poor service, as you and I might render him, is still going to leave a wonderful, beautiful tip so long as we bring our part to his table. In your bulletin blurb there, there's another word that comes into the conversation at this point, assurance. Simply put, assurance means how can I be sure that I'm saved, that I'm justified, that God views me as righteous, right? That's really the question behind all theology. How do I know? How do I know that I stand before God, righteous, innocent, declared, not guilty in his sight? How can I have assurance? In the faith and works model, my assurance ultimately comes through having something to boast about. That's the word that Paul brings into the reading at the end of what we heard earlier from him. And honestly, honestly, if at this point you've already forgotten all that Luther history, if you've gotten a fair amount, forgotten a fair amount of the, the like the theological jargon that I've tossed around there, that's all, frankly, I'm fine with it. But I want to make sure that you walk away today with these two words then. Assurance, first one and now boasting. To boast is to speak approvingly about your own deeds. If your justification involves what you've done, it will require you to boast, right? To to tell God, ultimately, when you stand before him about all that you've done for, for him, for other people, whatever, and for you then to have assurance, you'd need to be confident that you had done enough. But you haven't, and I haven't, and the law shows us, and when we look in its mirror, that we have not done enough, that we can't receive that assurance through the law. And... God is not this sort of generous tipper, right? This person who's going to overlook poor service. Our reading said it. He's just. A just God does not hand out justification, righteousness, forgiveness to people who have fallen short unless justice is satisfied in some other way. This is what Luther understood, right? If I can bring it around to this particular festival we're celebrating again today. Luther understood that he, a brilliant theologian, a preacher and teacher, a conscientious pastor, I would add, a monk, a priest, he had nothing that he could offer which would justify him before God. He could not arrive at assurance. And here's the kicker. Luther thought that that was the point at the time. He thought that he was not supposed to find assurance. He thought that he was supposed to doubt he thought that he was supposed to live in doubt and fear and think that that was the, 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 the sum of Christian theology because that's what the Catholic Church told him. And that's what bugged him about this indulgence stuff. This is assurance, you're saying. You're giving assurance to people. You're telling them, Tetzel, that their sins are forgiven because they bought this paper. We're not supposed to be assured, Luther thought. We are not supposed to have this. This isn't what God wants to give us. We're supposed to, to doubt and fear and, and be afraid that we have not brought enough and, and come before him in that that frame of mind. Luther's 95 Theses, I mentioned it earlier. If you go and read through them later, maybe today, maybe you're interested enough by now, they are not a particularly Lutheran document. They're a very solidly Roman Catholic document combating the false preaching of assurance through indulgences. That's what the 95 Theses did. And as I said, if Luther's 
theses have been accepted by Rome, if they had reined Petzl in a little bit and said, all right, you got to just tone back what you're promising that you're giving people through these things, would have been hunky-dory, Luther would have felt fine, and the church would have been left with the preaching of doubt and fear and ultimately boasting in works. But Rome didn't accept Luther's theses. They, they pushed to try him for heresy, and that drove Luther into the Bible. Right, to figure out whether or not he was indeed expressing heresy, how should he speak about these things. And two years later, right, so two years after posting these 95 theses, two years before his heresy trial, 1519, Luther had what he called the, the Tower Experience. He was reading what we read this morning, the Book of Romans. And he was suddenly, at that point, right, 1517, we, we recognize it because it's where these, things, these snowballs start to roll, but Luther was not a Lutheran, an evangelical, he would say, at that point, 1519. Luther's sitting in a tower reading the book of Romans and he's suddenly blown away to understand that he is supposed to expect assurance. That he is supposed to expect a promise from God of salvation, of peace between him and God, of reconciliation, of atonement, having been made and guaranteed that this is the point of it all. He's reading these words where the Apostle Paul teaches, as we read this morning, that God had presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Atonement, what does that word mean? It means reconciliation with God, established by Jesus' sacrifice and received by faith. That's it. If you think that your standing before God is established on the basis of the things that you get to bring to the table to him, cast aside that boasting. If you're afraid that your standing before God is determined by what you have brought to the table, cast those fears aside. Understand what Luther understood, which is nothing more, nothing less than what Paul expressed here and in his letter to the Ephesians as well. By grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. It comes not by works, so that none may boast. Happy Reformation. Amen.